on today's message from Harvest Church of God. When you choose to believe the report of the Lord, you've anchored yourself to truth because God's Word is the truth and God's Word is life and God's Word is victory and God's Word is peace. Is Jesus your all in all today? Is He the centerpiece of your affection? Is He the one whom you adore? Is He the one who lives with you, walks and talks with you? Is He the Christ that abides in your heart? His favor follows you even through a year like 2020. With every kind of fearful situation from the economy to the ventilator, fear doesn't cancel the fact that God's goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And now, Lord, we've come to the time in this service where we pause in your presence and contemplate the things of your Word. Your Word has been our living manual. Your Word has been a lamp and a guide. Your Word has been the standard by which we live our lives. We know, O oh God, that your Spirit has something to say to us. And you said that where as few as two or three are gathered, you said, I will be there in the midst of you. Thank you for your presence in this meeting today. And I ask you for something of which I'm not worthy. I ask you to use me, O Lord, as a vessel, that you would touch me and touch my lips and touch my heart and mind and help me to communicate your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. What times we've come to live in. In Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, he said these are the best of times and these are the worst of times. How can things be the best and at the same time be the worst? Well, there are many things that are right and many things that are pleasant, but there are also some things that are wrong and things that are unpleasant, just like it is in most situations. There are a lot of controversy, things that don't seemingly go together. We hear now about our culture that this is cancel culture, that so many things are canceled, everything from school to sporting events to all kinds of matters. In fact, the Church of God canceled the General Assembly and just decided for everybody to stay in their place for two more years. Uh, that sounds like circle the wagons and hold the fort, doesn't it? It seems like the church is being postured in this position of playing defense. What's going to be the damage, and will we be able to withstand it? What's going to be the final number? What are, what are we looking at as far as the church is concerned? Well, so far, the church has kind of took it on the chin in this country. So far, the church has really been denied a lot of the things that we just take for granted every day. There are still places where they're not able, by law, to gather together and worship like we are here today. So this is good for us, but it's bad for them where they are. In some places, there is uh, laws that are in effect that prohibit them from meeting, and any group of 10 or more is strictly against the law. So there's a lot of things that are going on in our culture today, and a lot of things are canceled that we 
normally look forward to and normally that we like. And uh, there are some that are analysts and evaluators that say we, we may be living like this for a long time. That many of the things we took for granted, like a shake hands and hug a neck and that kind of thing, that might not be what's in our future. I really don't know what the future looks like. But I do know this. I know that something cannot be canceled except by the person who created it. And being as the Bible says, all things consist by the word of his mouth, and that all things were created by him, and without him there was nothing created that was created. So that if God is the creator, and God is the origin and the genesis of it all, then he's the one that says when it's canceled. He's the one that says long enough or how much that's going to, to last. Because I believe that God is in charge of all of history. I believe that God is in control. I believe that God knows where we are. I believe God knows all about the GNP. I think God all, already knows about the law of diminishing returns. I, I think he already knows about the economy. I think he already knows about the pandemic. I think he already knows because he inhabits eternity and he travels through eternity. He's in our tomorrows and he's in our yesterdays. He is the Lord of the present, but he's also the God of the omnipresent. He is a God who is able to be everywhere present at one time. And I want to tell you here today that every one of you in this house, you're a container, you're a vessel, a vessel. We'll look at some scripture in just a minute in 1 Timothy 2.20 that says that we are all uh, containers. We're vessels. In a great house, there are vessels. There are some that are vessels of gold and silver. There are some that are vessels of hay and stubble, the Bible calls it. There are some that are honorable and some that are dishonorable, as, or as we would say, ignoble. They're not noble. So then we come to this reality that God inhabits people, that people are the dwelling place of God. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 and 16, know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will walk in them and I will dwell in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith God, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So then we find out that we are a, a holy temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says at the end of that chapter, ye are no more uh, strangers and foreigners, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and are the household of God, a holy temple fitly framed together, and a habitation of God through the Spirit. So then we all are indwelt by our God. Amen. We brought him to church with us today because he's in us, around us, above us, beneath us. He is everywhere present, but he is basically at home in your heart, at home in your mind. You are the habitation of God. Through the Spirit, he indwells you. He walks in you. He is a father to you and you are his son and you are his daughter and of all the people that are used of God vessels that are used of God there are some that are have great notoriety 
There are some that are famous. There are some that are rather small and insignificant. But they all play a part in God's eternal plan. The Apostle Paul, Debbie tells me sometimes I pay too much attention to the Apostle Paul, and I, and I understand that because he's not uh, really cool on women. And so I understand why she thinks uh, enough of Paul already. Let's hear somebody else. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. Thirteen epistles are accredited to him. Wrote over half, like I said, of the New Testament. He is called the architect of the early church. He's called the Aristotle of the Christian faith. He is the great philosopher. He's the thinker. He is the one that put all of these duties and responsibilities of, of people in the church. He talks about bishops. He talks about deacons. He talks about uh, all kind of attributes and congregational life as we know it. We basically owe that to Paul. Jesus didn't tell us anything much about a church except that he'd build it on a rock and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's basically what Jesus said about the church. So we have to go to the Acts of the Apostles and find out how that whole nuance of church and congregation is instituted and how it functions and how it works in the plan of God. The Apostle Paul was a great evangelist. He was a missionary. And sometimes when you are so zealous for God, you become controversial. And Paul became controversial because he took such a strong stance on Jesus is the Son of the living God. He's the Savior of the world, and we're saved by grace through faith. Now, to a Jewish audience, that was tough to hear because the Jewish audience was all wrapped up in feast days, rituals, ceremonials, laws, all of those things were part of Judaism. And Paul was trying to tell them, it's simple. It's not near as complex as you're making it. It is as simple as by faith receiving the grace of God in the person of Jesus as full pardon and full salvation from the sins. And because he was so powerful in that preaching, it made him controversial with Jewish audience. It made him controversial with the Roman government because everywhere he went, there was a stir. When he went to Athens, he got to Mars Hill where the philosophers and the Stoics and the Epicureans met to talk about some new thing, the Bible said. And the Bible said they looked at him and said, well, he's a babbler. They called him a babbler, the Bible said, because he brought strange things to their ears because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. He was very, very Christological. In other words, he was very much established in the doctrine. Pauline theology teaches us that Jesus Christ is all and in all. That Jesus is all you need to know. If you need to be saved, Jesus is all you need to know. Amen. If you need healing, if you need inspiration, if you need strength, if you need encouragement, Jesus is all you need to know. And to the Colossians, Paul said that. He said, he is all and in all. Is Jesus your all in all today? 
Is Jesus your all? And is he the centerpiece of your affection? Is he the one whom you adore? Is he the one who lives with you, walks and talks with you? Is he the Christ that abides in your heart? Then if so, Pauline theology should relate to you because he's all about Jesus. And everywhere he preached and everywhere he went, the Bible said he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. He was so firm in that Christological belief. There's a, a portion of Scripture because preaching like he did and creating the stir like he did, he got arrested by the, in fact, it was some Jewish people that came and said, he, he, he says that he preaches a Jesus who is a king. And there is no king but Caesar. And thank you, Caesar, for letting all of us Jewish people uh, do our, our thing at our temple and everything. But this guy, he's preaching something, a strange doctrine. He's brought into our, our church, and we've got a big stir going on in our church because this Jesus preacher has come in preaching these things and establishing churches, and people are getting healed, and people are, are causing a stir all over town, and we've got to stop this. So he was arrested, but what they didn't realize, he got in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's the two ruling groups in what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is what we would call Congress. I shouldn't be that mean to the Sanhedrin, should I? There were two main parties, just like we got two. Instead of Republicans and Democrats, they had Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in all kind of good things. They believed in angels. They, they believed in the afterlife. They believed you went to heaven. They believed that, that uh, God's law was to be uh, carried out. Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirit. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of things that are mystical. And their title says they were sad, you see. Brother, if you don't believe in the resurrection, I can understand you being a sad, you see. Brother, if you don't believe in angels, then I can understand why you'd be a sad, you see. <laughs> so when they got into an argument there and they were fussing back and forth, the apostle Paul just got up and he said, well, I want to tell all of you, all of you something. He said, you brought me to trial here. I want to tell you, I'm a good Pharisee. Boy, what a smart guy. Because suddenly the focus got off of him and got off on his being a Pharisee. And then they started fussing about the resurrection. And then they started fussing about angels. Pretty smart move on his part. But he still got to the point where he had to say, I'm a Roman citizen. You've arrested a Roman. And it's true when he was fighting and killing Christians and taking Christians and locking them in prison and putting them in stocks and bonds and doing all that stuff. The Romans were proud of him, said, come on in, pal, you're one of us. And he was made a Roman citizen. Graduated from the university at Tarsus, sat at the feet of Dr. Gamaliel, who was the greatest authority on Judaism in the world. And when he talked about how his credentials, he talked about all of those things, uh, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, 
circumcised the eighth day, Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, coming behind in nothing. But still, he was sentenced, and he appealed to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, that meant somebody's got to get him there. So there was this centurion that was charged with the order, take him to Rome because he's going to appear before Caesar. Now, God had already told Paul, you're going to preach in the palace in Rome. I'm going to use you to preach in the emperor's palace. And you know what? When, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he, he gave some insightful information. He talked about greetings to all of you, greetings to my, my friends. And he said, and greetings to all of those that are of the emperor's household. What do you think that was all about? I think once that, that contagious preacher about Jesus got in the house, then there were some folks that were kin to Caesar, his nephews and his cousins and his nieces that believed the preaching of this preacher about Jesus. You see, I hath not seen and ear hath not heard what God can do when he touches people and turns an evangelist on fire with a message that Jesus saves and Jesus heals. So there were converts right there in the emperor's palace. But while this boat is sailing, boy, they came upon a terrible storm. It's in Acts chapter 27 and 42, and I won't read the whole thing for valuable time. He says in verse 40 of Amos 20, or Acts chapter 27, And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea, and they loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. Boy, bad news. Now, if you were a prisoner and you're standing in close proximity to where they're discussing this matter, you see, there's 276 people on board this ship. And they've settled it. This, this thing's going to shipwreck. This, this thing's going down. And the best thing, the soldiers said, best thing we can do is kill all of these prisoners that we're carrying. Carrying prisoners, carrying grain. that already thrown the grain over. But that ship was carrying something that was very precious to God. God had a vessel on board that vessel. And one of those vessels was going to be destroyed, but it wasn't the one God loved. And it wasn't the one God said, I'll take care of. It wasn't the one God gave a promise to. It was the ship that was keeping them afloat. All that was between them and certain death in the sea was just the planks and the boards of that vessel. And God sent an angel and said to Paul, this vessel is going to crash and be wrecked and destroyed and fragmented. But every one of you 
will be saved and be spared. So when they're debating on whether to kill Paul and kill the other prisoners, he stood forward and he said, wait a minute before you make that decision. Have you ever had God to stop you right before you made a decision? Hold it, hold it, some more information. Last night, the angel of the Lord appeared unto me in a vision. And the angel of the Lord said to me that this ship is going to be destroyed, but none of us would be lost. And then he made a colossal statement. And I believe God. I believe God. Aren't you glad for those bold, brazen folks that when calamity comes and catastrophe is at knocking at the door, there'll be that person that'll stand up and say, listen, I believe God. I believe God. Whose report will you believe? We shall believe the report of the Lord. I want to tell you, when you've made up your mind that God's report is better than the Kessinger report, that the report of the Lord is more important than the New York Times, that the report of the Lord is better than the Bureau of Statistics publication, when you choose to believe the report of the Lord, you've anchored yourself to truth because God's Word is the truth and God's Word is life and God's Word is victory and God's Word is peace. I believe God, Paul said. I believe God. This thing's going to crash. It's going to hit the rocks and it's going to be shattered. But if we'll just stay on board, not a one of us will be lost. You know, there are a lot of people wanting to jump ship nowadays. Yes, there's a pandemic. Yes, friends of mine that are very close to me have, have died. Yes, pastor friends, pastor's wives have, have died. Just this last week, another one went on to be with the Lord. We're not out of the woods yet, I don't think. In fact, I know we're not out of the woods yet. So you need to be careful. But you better stay on board. I said you better stay on board. It's not time to jump ship yet. It's not time to cast yourself into the waters yet. There's going to come a time when a trumpet sounds that it's going to be all right to go. But, hey, we're going to all go together. I said we're going to all go together. That trumpet's going to sound, and the power of God is going to strike this earth, and gravitation's going to lose its power, and we're going to go up to meet the Lord in the air. We're all going to jump ship one day, but not now. And until that day, you stay on board. Because God has given us a promise that, that that vessel is not going under, it's going over. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion willing to save Paul. Wow. That centurion had come a long way, hadn't he? You see, you hang around this crowd long enough. And it'll get a hold of you. There used to be an old song, Country is Cornbread. It says, I went there in spite, but oh God, that night, God certainly got a hold of me. Well, something got a hold of me. Praise God, 
Yes, something got a hold of me. I went there to fight. But, oh, God, that night, God certainly got a hold of me. That centurion that was attached to the apostle Paul, the Bible said, and the centurion willing to save Paul kept them from their purpose and commanded that they could swim, should cast themselves first into the sea and go to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Sometimes what's carrying you falls apart. Sometimes you've connected yourself and committed yourself to something that when it starts falling apart, you realize, I need to do something. And the Bible said that these, these guys said, this ship's going to be torn up. What's carrying you today? A marriage, a relationship, a business? What's carrying you? Are you a passenger on a vessel today I hope that you're on the right vessel this vessel right here was in port at a place called fair winds and the owner of the ship and the captain said let's try to make it to the next juncture it'll be a whole lot better there are better accommodations there's a better harbor and let's just go on to the next port and It'll be better. We'll winter there. But the Bible said Paul stood up and he said, wait a minute. The Lord has showed me that if we sail in this vessel, then we'll hazard our lives and we'll jeopardize our lives and this ship will not make it to the port that you intend to take it. What do you call that? A warning? A warning? You're driving along the highway and a red light comes on on the dash that says oil. And it starts making that racket. What do you call that? Warning. Do you just keep on going? I had to teach Debbie this lesson the hard way. She felt like if this old car will just get me to that next place where I'm going, oil light flashing, rods a pinging, and yeah, burn up the motor. Sometimes when you ignore the warning, you have to experience the consequences. My dad used to say it this way, he who will not listen to the rudder must answer to the rock. Another one he used to say was, if you won't listen, maybe you'll just have to feel. Boy, you heard that one, haven't you? Paul stood and said, brethren, don't do this. Please, let's don't hazard the lives of 276 people. But the Bible said, Sister Sue, 
the captain and the owner elected to not take the advice of Paul and they sailed anyway. I had a young lady, she was about to marry a, a young man. And I, I was talking to her, I said, you do love him, don't you? She said, well, I think I do. I said, you what? You think you do? Yeah, I think I do. I said, well, are you sure you want to marry? Well, I think I do. That was on a Sunday. The next Saturday night, she married. It didn't take but about two or three days to realize I shouldn't have done this. So here she comes back, knocking at my door. You know what she was looking for? And excuse me. But I said, no. Boy, you're looking at me. You mean God expects you to keep your vows? Yeah. You mean when we stand up here and you say so long as we both shall live? I know I'm on ter terrible ground right now. But sometimes if we would think about the decision we're making, maybe we would stop and say, if you're not absolutely sure about that, then don't. Don't. And I told a groom that one time as we were standing in the room fixing to walk out there and, man, you know, they get in that little room back there. And then we come out. And he said, Pastor, you got any advice you'd like to give me? I said, don't. I said, I'll go out here and I'll, I'll, I'll explain everything to him. We'll go back there and eat that food and have a big old time. But if you don't know for sure that you know what you're doing and that's what you want to do and it's the right thing, then don't. Amen. And don't send me any emails. <laughs> Paul told him, don't go. But as they sailed, the Bible said, they chose not to listen and here they were in a, in a terrible mess. Listen to what happened now when they get on. You say, who sent that storm, Brother Jerry? Well, the story doesn't tell. I reckon the storm just happened because it, that's what happens that time of year in the southern Mediterranean. Sometimes folks will say, oh, the devil sent that storm. Well, I don't know that he did. It might have just been the natural order of things. It just didn't work out for you because you made a bad choice. And chose to sail anyway. Somebody say amen. That's good preaching. So when they got to land and all 276 of them, Cindy, were saved. Every one of them made it. Imagine that. God did what he said he would do. Now they've landed on a, a place called Malta. Do you know what Malta means? You know what the real word means? The Greek for that word? It means honey. Thank God there was a honey to go to. 
Thank God that when they had their storm, there was a honey nearby. A lot of preaching there I'm going to pass. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Malita. It's Malta. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. For they kindled a fire and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. Wow, wonder of all wonders. They landed among barbarians and people that were pagan, and they befriended them. The Bible says it was cold and it was rainy, so they built a fire and brought them shelter. And he said their kindness was no small kindness. That means it's very great kindness. And Paul, the Bible said, was going to build a fire. I love preachers who build a fire. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, we've already said that the storm was just nature being nature. Brother Jerry, I believe the devil got in that fire and got in that snake. I believe the devil put that snake in there trying to kill Paul. Well, I don't know that either because I know that fire chases out snakes. That's nature also. But the marvelous thing about that was Paul just walked over and shook it off in the fire. Boy, that's good stuff. I could preach a long time right there. Sometimes things get attached to you. Sometimes while you're doing good, building fires, doing something to help and something to be a blessing, sometimes something will attach itself to you. In this case, a, a viper bit him, and the Bible said he walked over and shook it off in the fire. But these were Church of God barbarous people, I, I, I know. And when the church of God barbarians saw the venomous snake hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer. Boy, blame. Somebody's got to figure it out. If something bad happened to you, it's because you did something bad. If something came your way that's hurtful, that's destructive, it's because you're, you're just not who you ought to be. And you're just not, listen to what they call him. They said, this man must be a murderer. Well, why would you jump to a conclusion like that? He wasn't a murderer. But because a snake made a move on him, you're going to point that finger? Come on, somebody. Now, you'll have to learn something about human nature if you don't know it already. They are very keen on pointing the finger. Buckle your seatbelt, especially in churches. It's got to be somebody's fault. Got to be somebody to blame. And here are these barbarous people were that said he got snake bit because he's a hypocrite 
got snake bit because the real truth is he's a murderer. Well, that's not true. None of that is true. Why would you jump to a conclusion like that? Amen. Preach it, Brother Jerry. Thank you. The barians, barbarians saw that venomous beast hang on his hand. They said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet the vengeance suffereth him not to live. And Paul shook off the snake in the fire and felt no harm. I said he felt no harm. I said he felt no harm. No fever, no twitching. No hurt, no coma, no kicking, no convulsing, nothing. Now the same barbarians that pronounced him a murderer, they looked at this situation and they said, hey, he should be dead. That was a venomous snake. That was a poisonous snake that bit him. We know because people around here, when they get bit by a snake like that, they die. And this man got bit. We saw him all, every one of us saw him get bit. But it didn't do anything to him. Now I want to ask you something. They said, he must be a god. Are you still convinced that the devil put the snake in there? Could it be that God used an opportunity to say something to people that needed, glory to God, needed a, a sign that these are not ordinary folk. This, this, this Paul of Tarsus, this Paul, he, he's, he's not just an ordinary man. There's something about him. He's a different vessel. He's a different kind of, of a guy. Wow. Listen to this. God's favor was not canceled by the mistakes that the sailors made before the ship broke apart. You see, it's one thing to realize God's favor when you make good decisions and you're praying and you're reading your Bible and you're growing and you're witnessing, but you also need to know that God doesn't just abandon you when you aren't at your best because of some stressful situation or a severe hardship. No, his favor follows you even through a year like 2020 with every kind of fearful situation from the economy to the ventilator. Fear doesn't cancel the fact that God's goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So God knew where their ship was sailing, and God knew where it was going to land. So God's favor went before them to prepare the hearts of a people that would minister to them. God's favor awaited them in the place where their mistakes had landed them. I said God's favor awaited them in the place where their mistakes and their bad decisions and their bad choices had landed them. If you'll look at Joseph's life, 17 years 
God had a purpose. God had a plan for him. One of the most eloquent pictures of the Savior is the life of Joseph. But did you notice all along when he got thrown in the pit, when his coat of many colors was stained with blood from a goat, when he was sold to the traitors, God's favor was with him. Even though bad things were happening to him. When he got down to Egypt, he was placed on the slave market auctioning block. And a man named Potiphar bid, the high bid, and won Joseph. Was God with him? Did God know where he was? Did God know what he was going through? Did God know the whole situation? Yeah. He was a servant in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife put her arms around him in lustful desire. And the Bible said he ran out of his coat. It was bad. She told Potiphar a lie. He was lied on. Wound him up in prison. Was he still in God's hand? Was he still in God's control? Yeah. Did God still know where he was and what he was going through? Yeah. And the Bible said very soon, Joseph won the favor of the prison guards that everywhere he went, everything he did, God favored him and God blessed him with all, all that he did. And one day a cook and a butler told him their dream and he interpreted their dream for them. Pharaoh brought him in and he became the, the savior of God's people because God's people were in a strange land. Here's a picture of salvation. In a strange land and there was no food there and there was no sustenance, there was no life, but God had placed Joseph in a strategic place. God had put him in a place where he could feed God's people. He was the answer to the prayer they were praying. They were praying, oh God, sustain us. Oh God, help us. Oh God, be with us. Oh God, supply our need. We need food. We're hungry. We're, we're perishing. But God had put his designated vessel in place so that when they came down, God was already at work because God had already put a Savior in place. You see, sometimes your mistakes land you in some places, but if you'll look around, you'll find out that God is still there. Hmm. You ever make some decisions that you would like to have that do over? Don's chipping game is so bad. The only thing that exceeds his poor chipping is his poor putting. And he's very glad because 
that it, when we go to play these little tournaments, they've got what they call mulligans. And they're trying to raise money. So they'll sell you a mulligan for $10. Most of the time you can buy two. Don always buys as many as they'll sell. Wouldn't you like to have a mulligan sometimes when you did something stupid? Don't sit there and act like you had never done anything stupid. There are a lot of decisions, a lot of choices I wish I could redo. Boy, it's, it, when you look back, I, I call it the view from the end zone. Boy, you can think of a lot of time. Boy, I wish I'd have done that different. I wish I'd have did that. I wish I'd have. I wish I'd have. I wish I'd have. You know, sometimes, can I be honest with you this morning? Sometimes we get defensive. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes when Debbie and I see things differently, she'll say, well, you don't, need, you don't need to get defensive about that. Well, I didn't realize I was being defensive. I'm just telling you why I'm right about that. Well, I don't need to hear why you're right. You're actually just being defensive. Well, maybe I am. So I might as well just own up to it and say, sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm opinionated. And don't look down your little ecclesiastical nose as if you're not opinionated either. Sometimes, you know, I kind of voice my opinion. Sometimes I think uh, <clears throat> somebody needs to know. You see, the thing about that finger that points like those barbarians did, that thumb's coming right back at you, isn't it? God's favor didn't cancel. Wasn't canceled. In our text, God's favor waited for the people when they got to the place they needed Him. You know that snake issue? Come on, Olivia, and help me quit. That snake issue... Brother Jerry, the Bible said he's a serpent, ain't he? Yes, he is. He slithers and slimes his way. He really does. Did you know that Moses, when he was being positioned by God, the Bible said he rose up and did what the barbarians accused Paul of, murder. Now Moses is guilty. Paul wasn't guilty, but Moses was guilty. And his problem was, he didn't want to do it God's way, he wanted to do it his way. So he rose up and slew an Egyptian that was beating a Hebrew. No, I'm not going to wait on God to do it his way, I'm going to do it my way, and he killed. And the Bible said he ran. And he ran to Midian, and the Bible said he was tending sheep on the backside of Midian. And God appeared to him in a fiery bush. And he said, what is that 
thing in your hand. Oh, it's just a stick. And God said, throw it down. And when he threw it down, it became a serpent. And God said, pick it up. And he walked over and picked it up. And it was a stick again. When Paul realized he had been bitten by a serpent, he just reached over and shook it off. The Scripture said, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. In my name they shall lay hands upon the sick and they shall recover. In my name if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. Moses threw his stick down on the ground and it became a serpent. There was a time when Israel was so rebellious. They were in the wilderness wishing they'd stayed in Egypt. They were longing for normal. Normal for them was slavery. Normal for them was Break, baking bricks in the oven and carrying them and building the pyramids for the pharaohs. Normal for them was the beating. Normal for them was the verbal abuse. Normal. And they said, we wish we were back being out here in this abnormal place. It's so bad. At least while we were in Egypt, we had spice, food to eat. And at least we had a bed to sleep in. And at least we had a shelter. Here we are out here in the wilderness and don't have anything over our head. Here we are out here trying to find water out of a rock that he smites with his rod. Oh, God, I wish we were back in Egypt where it's normal. Well, we'll have to say we're in abnormal times right now, aren't we? But I want to tell you, God doesn't cancel His favor just because you've come to an abnormal time. You see, there were two vessels on that water that day. There was one vessel that was carrying the Apostle Paul. There was another vessel named Paul that was in that number of passengers that that ship carried. But the Apostle Paul was carrying something. It didn't matter what carried him as long as he was carrying. The vessel that he was riding in was carrying him. But in his heart, he was carrying a gospel that would save the world. And what was more important than the ship that was carrying him was the gospel that he carried in his vessel. I want to ask you this Sunday morning in April, have you got that message on your vessel? Are you carrying that vessel? Have you hidden His Word in your heart? Has your mind been transformed? 
Have you become that new creature in Christ? If you are, you're carrying around something inside you that's far more important than the things that carry you. What you carry is more important than what carries you. Stand with me, please. I'll save those jars of clay for next Sunday. In a great house, we're vessels. We're vessels. We're carrying around. The Bible said always carrying around the dying and the death of the Lord Jesus. One time that scripture totally won't come where, where it is. But it says, we are always carrying around the death of the Lord Jesus, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Always carrying about the death of the Lord Jesus. Is the cross in your heart? Is Calvary in your heart? Is the blood of Jesus' cross in your heart? Are you carrying around Calvary? If you're carrying Calvary with you, then praise God, it doesn't matter what's carrying you. It's what you're carrying that's so important. Are you carrying the cross? Are you carrying Calvary? Thank you, Lord, for allowing us this morning to be in this house of worship. And thank you that every one of us is a vessel. You said there are vessels of honor, and there are vessels of dishonor. God, don't let any of us be a vessel of dishonor. God, don't let any of us in this house be a vessel that can't hold anything. We want to hold your blessings. We want to hold Calvary. We want to hold the resurrection. We want to carry in our bodies the hope, the eternal hope of a resurrection, of a physical return of the Lord Jesus, a heaven to gain. Lord, we're reminded when that vessel Paul sat from which he wrote this letter to Timothy. He said, I'm now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. But not to me only, but to all of them also that love his appearing. God, we love you today, and we thank you that you're in our hearts, and I'll carry you in my heart till I die. And I pray that everyone in this room will pledge to you, Lord, I'll carry you in my heart until I die. Dismiss us now in your care and your love, and go with us, Lord, to our homes and families. Keep us safe from harm and danger. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen.